0: Welcome, everyone, to the podcast Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. This is a podcast where we talk about tough theological and Christian living questions sent in by people just like you. Our hope is that listening will strengthen your confidence in God's Word, helping you to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you have any questions, please send them to Tim at gmail.com. Okay, welcome back to uh, another episode of an, uh, Unanswered Questions. Uh, this is Tim Cole trying to uh, address a pretty difficult question, one that demands uh, a serious and thought out answer. It's not the last answer. It's not the best answer, but it's uh, given from a position that uh, I have adopted and, and embraced. And it concerns the uh, the alleged problem between the portrait of God in the New Testament, generally in Jesus Christ, and the portrait of God in the Old Testament, there seems to be a discrepancy between God of the Old and the God of the New. It seems to be a contradiction. It seems like the God of the Old Testament is capricious, trigger-happy, mean, bully, versus Jesus, who never said a nasty thing, never did anything hard, never forced decisions on people's lives. So is there a contradiction? Is there harmony? Uh, what's, you know, what's the way to traverse between two icebergs before we sink our ship? And so what I'd like to do, first of all, is to read from Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins is an atheist, well-known, and his view of the Old Testament God um is probably extreme, but at least it represents what goes on in the minds of many people today. He says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Did you get that? He's jealous. He's proud. He's petty. He's unjust. He's unforgiving. He's a control freak. He is vindictive, bloodthirsty. He's an ethnic cleanser he's homophobic, he's racist, he's genocidal, he's pensillential, he's megalomaniacal, he's fatal masochistic, and he's capriciously malevolent bully. Now that's a, that's a power-packed punch there. Uh, these words are echoed by his fellow atheist, Charles Templeton, who said, the God of the Old Testament, is unlike the God believed in most practicing Christians. His justice is by modern standards outrageous. He's biased, vindictive, and jealous of his prerogatives. Now what is it in the Old Testament that elicits such strong language and strong images by men such as Dawkins or Charles Temperton? Does the Old Testament actually paint a picture like that, that's true to what they had to say? Is God a cosmic bully with a hair trigger who is ready to torture us for the end of our lives simply because we neglect a small request that he has given from heaven? Well, the answers that I'd like to suggest to these accusations and these questions are important because we as Christians are quick to tell the world, to tell our friends, to tell our neighbors, to tell our family that there is a God of love who is patient, forgiving, and slow to anger. That does not in any way find sympathy with the description given by Richard Dawkins or Charles Temperton. So what I'd like to do in response to the Alleged discrepancy and contradiction is to look at some of the passages in the Old Testament where these references are made, where these accusations are sourced. And I'll give you a list of them right now. We're going to look, for example, at the flood narrative. We're going to look at the instance of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to look at also God's commands to deal with the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They go by the name of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then the overthrow of Jericho in Joshua chapter 1 and 2 and following. So I'm going to look at four sections of the Old Testament where people are judged and overthrown due to God's direct command. How are we to understand these stories? Uh, The Genesis flood says, God speaking, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth will perish. And so it's clear. That God himself is the one choosing to cause the death of untold members of men, women, and children. Later, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is depicted in the following words. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities that grew on the ground. So people use these two particular passages to charge God with genocide. And then there's a third one. Uh, Israel was to eliminate the people who were living in the land of Canaan. And this is what God says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clear away nations before you, then he mentions those seven nations, you shall defeat them you shall utterly destroy them. Don't make a covenant with them. Show them no favor. So it seems to the skeptic that God is responsible for the death of innocent people whose only crime is that they were living in the land that God wanted his people to possess. So it sounds as if right now the critics have a case. I've given you three examples, one more, and then we'll start interacting with these. Particular passages. The fourth one is the overthrow of Jericho by Joshua and the nation of Israel. Um, The the Lord told Israel to utterly destroy everything in the city of Jericho. Men, women, young and old, ox, sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Again, it seems like a merciless uh, involvement of God against innocent people. Um the Bible then tells us to be like God, and yet page after page after page shows God to be some sort of a mass murderer. Do you feel the contradiction there? Do you feel the tension between those two things? Uh, we could go on. there are other examples, but I 've chosen the most extreme I've chosen the absolute worst. <laughs> to show that I'm serious about this matter. I don't want to dismiss the charge. I don't want to sweep it under the rug. I want to admit that it's there. And I've read the very passages that people have come up with to label or level their charge against God, the God of the Old Testament. And in a minute, I want to go to the new and show you that what happened to these cities is even topped by Jesus uh, in Luke's gospel. But first, Let's go back and even ask the question, uh, is there something below the surface or is there some things about these people that we should know before we jump to conclusions? And the answer is yes. So I'm going to address these passages in the same order that I started with. I'm going to begin with the Genesis flood, which if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's contained in Genesis 6, 7 and 8. The Bible tells us that uh, violence and evil had grown to such proportions that that violence and that evil had literally touched everything and everyone that existed at the time. It says, the Lord saw, this is from Genesis 6, that the evil of mankind was huge, prevalent on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. So the writer is telling us that evil permeated and filled the earth. So the charge that God had innocently killed people is not true. These people were anything but innocent. They were characterized and and permeated with evil, violence, and wickedness. Also, we are told that these people heard a message from Jonah for a hundred years, asking them, urging them to repent before judgment fell. So God gave them a hundred years to repent. In other words, God waited a hundred years before judgment fell. Um, his message to Jonah was to procl- not Jonah, excuse me, Noah, to proclaim the truth of repentance and judgment, so that this corrupt culture could find mercy and salvation in God. And yet we discover that only Jonah and his family, his three sons and their wives were the ones who responded to the offer of mercy and salvation. But if they had responded, not one person would have died. Not one person would have drowned. Not one person would have been destroyed if they had taken the message of judgment to repent of their evil. And we are told in Romans 1 that these things are written on people's consciences. They know that their evil actions and their violence is wrong. They know it instinctively. God has written it on their hearts. So when a message comes along of grace and mercy, the good and the right thing to do would be to respond. But there was none. So um, the charge that God simply destroyed innocent people is groundless. Um, They were not innocent, and he didn't do it without warning. And there is a pattern, by the way, in all these passages. There's a pattern of God telling them what's going to happen, then giving them time to repent. There's that pattern to repent of what they've done. And in each case, people just said, no, no thanks. We're going to live the way that we want to live. Third, or second, is the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Two cities in Genesis 13. We are told that, uh, actually it's a little bit later on, but we're told that Abraham and his nephew Lot separated from one another because their flocks had grown too large for the land that they lived in. And Lot chose to move into an area that Genesis describes as a land like the garden of the Lord. And he was describing the area of Sodom. So God had blessed the land despite the lifestyle that these people had chosen to live. This is an example of what we call common grace, where God causes his rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. He also provided rescue from harm and from justice through spiritual instruction. We're told, for example, that Abraham rescued Lot, from having been taken prisoner of war, and it shows how Melchizedek came out of the king of Sodom and blessed Abraham. It seems plausible that the people of that land had been exposed to by this man called Melchizedek, this priest who lived in Sodom. Perhaps for about 25 years, they had heard the message of God from Melchizedek, so they Even though they lived in a land that was blessed by God and had heard the truth from Melchizedek and were warned that God was about to judge them, they refused. And the depth of their evil is shown when um, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah was great. Their sin was exceedingly grave, is the the words from Genesis 18. So. Then finally, we have this discussion between Abram and God in Genesis 19. Would God destroy a city if he could find 50 people in it? And God agreed to salvage the city if he could find 50 people. And you know the story. There's this discussion between Abram and God. And finally, we come down to the bare minimum of 10 people. And even there was not found 10 people in the whole city. Now, so there is no there was no ground or justification for saying that this city was full of innocent people. God could not even find 10, <laughs> not even 10 people. And so on the basis of the fact that God could not even find 10 people, that it was then that God decided it was time for them to be judged. So um, God allowed the city to exist for many years with patience. He had blessed them. And yet, uh, in spite of God's blessing of this land for many years, a blessing that is likened to the Garden of the Lord, a Garden of Eden for Pete's sake, they still chose to remain in their sin. And, of course, the legacy of Sodom and Gomorrah is replete with the level of sexual perversion on a level that is virtually unknown elsewhere in in the Old Testament. Now, let's look for a third example, the destruction of the Canaanites in the city of Jericho. As you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. What happened here? Is this an example of overkill, where even the oxen, the sheep, and the donkeys were eliminated when Israel destroyed the city? Is there any justification for what God did? Well, the people who lived there, as we know, are called Canaanites because the land was called Canaan when you live in Canaan, you're called a Canaanite. And these people are descendants of Ham, one of the sons of Noah. And as you know, one of the sons of Noah was cursed. We're not too clear about the nature of the curse. But what is very clear is the nature of the people called the Canaanites. They were involved in incest, cultic prostitution, and child sacrifice. For example, uh, this is what uh, the Lord told Joshua, when you enter the land, which the Lord God gives you, do not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. So the description of what the people were like who lived in Jericho The Canaanites, these are people who are practicing child prostitution, incest, and uh, sacrificing their children to gods in the fire, as well as witchcraft. I would say these are serious crimes against humanity and serious crimes against God. Can you imagine what would happen today? Can you imagine what would happen today in any country if those things were discovered? What would the country want to happen to these people? (laughs) They'd string them up by their toes. Child sacrifice, passing their children through the fire, shedding innocent blood. Uh, The land of Canaan was full and replete. And yet God allowed them 400 years. God gave them 400 years in his patience. And there's another interesting point that we must consider. When Joshua entered the city, he found a woman named Rahab and her household, which heard Israel, had heard about the nation of Israel and how God had blessed the nation. She knew as Israel's fame. And I think it's reasonable to assume that the rest of the city knew of the history of Israel uh, as she did. They could easily have escaped, escaped the destruction, but they stubbornly chose to remain and fight against Israel. So this is not um, a case where God simply puts people to death and judge them because they're innocent. <laughs> In each case, what I've shown you is that there's a pattern that goes on. People are, are made aware of their sin and then given a chance to repent. And sometimes the time of preaching is an extended period of time. But no, it was 100 years. Here it was 400 years. So he's giving them a time to change their ways. He is not take um, a cheap thrill out of destroying people and judging them. He would rather they come to repentance. So um, what I've done is given some examples of uh, the Old Testament that show where people have been judged by God, but they were not judged as innocent people. The pattern is that God declares a form of judgment to be annihilation, stamping out a cancer among humanity. The judgments are for public recognition of extreme sin, and the judgments are preceded by a warning from someone, and with long periods of exposure to the truth and time to repent. uh, Someone is always saved from the evil of that particular Culture. Someone is spared. Someone hears the message. Someone responds, and they escape from the judgment. And then, after time has elapsed, after truth has been shared and warnings have been shared, then the judgment of God falls. So, to conclude this portion, let's say that there are no people who are innocent, and the objects of God's judgments were involved in gross sin, committed acts of great barbarism such as ritualistically burning their own children to death as offerings to false god, And instead of immediate judgment, God gave them time, incredible patience, and waited until the full measure of their deeds were completed. As the scripture says regarding the Amorite people, then in the fourth generation, fourth, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So um, now let's think about this portrait of God, this portrait of God that Dawkins has given us or Templeton has given us, and compare it to the story of the New Testament. One passage is sufficient because I'm getting a little long in here, uh, didn't mean to go too long, uh, but I uh, wanted to give enough passages that are serious and give them time or give enough time to each one to show that uh, there is a case for annihilation, but there's a reason for it. What does the New Testament show us about the picture of God? What's the portrait of God that Jesus gives us? But Jesus um, says some things that are related to what I've just talked about. He says that, um, that to the people of Capernaum, to the people of a city in first century Israel, he says uh, when you are when you enter a town and are not welcomed go into the streets and say even the dust of the town that sticks to our feet we wipe against you we wipe off against you you can be sure of this the kingdom of god is near i tell you it would be more bearable on that day for sodom than for that town here again uh, cities in first century israel saw jesus they saw his miracles and heard him preach for a period of years and When the message is rejected, when the message of Christ and of redemption and forgiveness is rejected, Jesus says the consequence of that rejection is going to be worse than it was for Sodom. So Jesus is telling us that what we saw occur at Sodom in the book of Genesis, where fire and brimstone rained down on the city, it's going to be far worse, according to Jesus, far worse than what happened to Sodom. Then he takes three other cities to task. Uh, I've been to all of them in the the nation of Israel. Uh, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it would be more bearable for you, for Tyre and Sidon, in the judgment than for you. So Tyre and Sidon are known for being um, godless, materialistic, greedy nations. They lived on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea where great sea traders had made a lot of money and picked on Israel. Um, and yet Jesus says that it will be more bearable on the judgment than the cities in his own town, in his cities in his own land who heard the truth and yet refused to accept the truth. So what we're hearing is That the judgment we see in the Old Testament is not as bad as the judgment that Jesus calls down on New Testament cities. So compare the warnings of Jesus and the promises of Jesus to what we see in the Old Testament. And it's clear in Luke's gospel that Jesus is not the, quote, a person who just doesn't care what people do, walking around the city, giving witty sayings. And providing interesting parables to everybody. Jesus announced judgment and doom on cities. such as the world has never seen. One final Illustration. illustration. He then says, and you, Capernaum. That's where he based his ministry. That's where he moved to to have his ministry up in Galilee. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies in exaltation? I tell you, no. You will go down to the depths. So, what picture do we have, therefore, in in conclusion? When we compare Jesus and the new, the portrait of God in the new, and the portrait of God in the old, we find them considerably the same. They both view sin as serious. They both view sin as deserving judgment. They both had time to repent. We both, God-giving people, time to repent, God being patient, God not being a trigger-happy bully, a cosmic trigger-happy mean person. No, he he sees what people do. He calls them to repent. He shows them the truth. He calls them to change their ways, and he gives them time. And at the end of the day, when people refuse to obey God and refuse to change their evil, anti-human, anti-God ways, the judgment falls. And so it's remarkable that the men who have accused God of being so capricious, they themselves are guilty of not examining the passages of scriptures carefully, but in a cursory way. They themselves have jumped the gun. They're the ones who are trigger happy rather than the God whom they accuse of being guilty of that. Well, I hope I shed a little bit of light in possibly an area of darkness. A little bit of understanding where there's maybe some misunderstanding. And what I hope I've done is provoked you to study further. Don't take my word for it. Why don't you examine the issues yourself? Study the complete story of, say, Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, or the people in the land of Canaan. Look carefully. See what happened. Get the whole context. And then perhaps you will be better prepared to speak to someone about these questions. Thank you for joining us this episode and remember to send all your questions to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com.